in the pandemic, books were not socially distant from us. It was one of the comforts for a lot of people. There were books to read and books to follow and books to look forward to. But one of the strange things about reading, although it's done silently and it's done alone most of the time, that you want to share books, that if you like a book, you want someone else to read it, that you love the idea of a book that is, in a way, being, being part of the community or part of a community of readers. With that in mind, the art of reading is a way of bringing readers together. It's a way of choosing books that I think people might like because they have given me a lot of pleasure and having a discussion about these books and bringing people together so that we all know that it's not just that reading is a form of pleasure, which it also is, but it's an art. It's actually a way for us to engage intellectually and imaginatively with words, with sentences, with what writers have done. And um, so for that reason, um, I want to share these books that have mattered so much to me. Thanks very much for coming. It's lovely, it's, it's, uh, it's lovely on a rainy day to be able to play. I wonder, Nicole, if you could just start by giving us a few sentences to set a context for the short reading. Yes, yes, of course. Um, hi, um, thank you for coming. Uh, nothing special is set partly in present day and partly in um, Andy Warhol's factory. And it's, it's about two girls, uh, and mainly one girl, May, um, as she types up a novel um, written by Andy Warhol. Um, and this is a scene from the factory. I answered the phone only once, an act of utmost courage. Hello, I said, and the voice on the other end said, I want to speak to Andy, get me Andy. I approached him. All our interactions still consisted of me seeing him across the room, painting or talking or the on the phone curling the cord around his fingers in the dark or standing still in contemplation. Then I was in front of him and he was like an apparition. He barely responded when I told him there was a call for him. He rested his hand on his cheek to obscure his pimples, a trick I knew well. He gave a nod and assertion that he had seen me before. He didn't ask where I came from or what had brought me here. And why would he? I was just another young person in a room full of young people. He had absolutely nothing to say to me, but I could still see him assessing, deciding, harmless. Bad skin, bad hair, hiding even when he was in front of you. The effort he put in to make it seem like he had no power at all. He took the call, his arms folded. Even when he was in a room full of people, he was apart from them, totally separate, though he was connected to everything. I appraised him like Shelley would, with the same misplaced confidence, refusing to be intimidated. Without even noticing, I'd started to think like her. I'd always been inclined to follow. One morning I came in and my typewriter was gone. I touched the cold surface of my desk where I had once sat. At first I felt only slight annoyance of someone had rearranged items in my bedroom. Then a rising panic. I was being thrown out, useless like the bags of grey refuse that were removed weekly. I'd been caught out. I thought about other things I could do. I could make coffee, the family trade. My mind seized on that coffee pot as my saviour. As I stood there looking bewildered, Shelley placed a box on my desk. She swung her legs over towards me, a cigarette extending from her hand. Do you want me to take dictation? I can't, I said. Someone has stolen my typewriter. Was it you? Was it you? Was it you? Shelley mimicked me. Look inside. I was already reaching into the box. I held a cassette up under the light, as if expecting it to reveal something. I turned it over a couple of times in my hand. I'm always surprised these things are made out of plastic, Shelley said. It seems like it should be something more durable. Thank you. Thank you very much. Oh,
wonder if we could start by you explaining to us very succinctly um, who Andy Warhol was. <laughs> For the, the people that don't know, Andy Warhol was an artist in, in 1960s New York um, who ran a sort of scene or was in charge of a sort of scene uh, called a factory. Um, is that to say? No, I need to go a bit further. <laughs> okay, and he was famous for mainly for um, his paintings or the pop art movement. Um, and then he also made a lot of films. He's responsible for Interview magazine, continued making work until the 70s, through the 70s into the 80s when he died. And he's famous for saying that everybody <laughs> finishes. Everyone will be famous for 15 minutes. Yeah, they're all of us, one yeah. by one, I think we're going to be famous for 15 minutes. <laughs> um, but, but he did dominate the imagination of the art world in, yeah. in New York and elsewhere mm-hmm. for all these years. Yeah. And the factory was a place where people could come, strangely, mm. get in or not, become famous for 15 minutes or more, yeah. hang around, get damaged, manage to survive. Mm. Um, uh, and nobody understood quite what the magic was, but, yeah. but there was magic. I think there was magic. And also it was a, a kind of time... You know, I, I spent a bit of time researching this book and people were always like, oh, was it like, like, were you jealous of them? Because, you know, like they had all this sort of glamour and things. And I was like, no, I wasn't really jealous of that. But I was jealous of the fact that they got to spend so much time with their friends and like hang around. I don't have time to hang around, Colin. Like I have to pay my rent and things like that. So that way it was a great time of like creative freedom. That, that we don't really get to do anymore. There was a lot of hanging around, including, <laughs> I mean, the, the place was so open, especially when the next mm. building they went to after your building, yeah. that it was open enough for someone just to come up on the elevator, I call it the elevator, come up on the lift and literally shoot him. Mm. And, yeah. um, and that, that, you know, the place was so open for mm. anyone to come in and out of that mm-hmm. place. And people were also in that world. Uh, could you just take us through the life of one of them, um, a, a young woman called Edie. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people were damaged in this world. Yeah, I think it's an interesting mix of, I think there, some of them were, da- like he gets a lot of kind of, people blame him for someone like Edie, but I think... Well, could you tell us e- oh, Edie? Yeah. Yeah. Edie was a girl um, from a wealthy family uh, who kind of found Andy and Andy found her and they became like a sort of pairing even to the point where they looked alike and they were, you know, they were socialites, they went to everything and um, Edie eventually kind of became more and more got addicted to more and more drugs and, you know, um, sadly passed away very young. I think she was only, I think she was under 25 when she, when she died. Yeah, could you talk us about the book that was written about oh, her? Oh, yes. Um, yes, there's a book about her called uh, Edie, an American Girl um, by Jean Stein. Um, and I love this book. Have you read this book? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, it's like an oral history. So um, it's from all different, and it was actually very important for this book. Um, all kind of people that knew her, like talking about her, talking about her life, what she was like. And you get to see, it's a really interesting biography because you get to see her from so many different perspectives. And there's been a lot of biographies of Warhol, but they're always kind of straightforward. But I I like Edie because it reminds you that, you know, you're you're a different person to every everyone you meet, you know? Um, I mean, I think somebody here could ask, well, what did Edie do? I mean, did she, was she a writer? Was she a photographer? What was she? And the the answer is, this is this is a very strange world where people couldn't enter and become oddly famous because yeah. he, 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 for example, there's, there's a wonderful moment in your book um, where you describe the whole idea of what he did with a screen test where he would bring people in and simply put a camera on them. And for some people, of course, they would, they would absolutely thrive. They would come alive when that uh, people moved in and out of the light of the screen changing shapes. When they were illuminated underneath the flare, I could see many of them were ordinary, mm-hmm. broken, yellowing teeth, 
irregular features, bulging eyes, but all of it was overshadowed by whatever confidence and sexuality they projected. So he had this, well, mm. he had this idea that somehow if he just left the camera alone, mm. something would emerge. Instead of editing or instead of mm. you know, changing or asking questions indeed, just, just get a camera and leave it there. Mm. He did it on buildings as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah. but, the, but part of his affect was to seem to make things seem effortless mm. and to see what would happen then. Yeah, and I, I, you can still watch the screen test. The screen tester is still on, on YouTube um, and you can watch EDs and things. And they're quite exposing when you leave the camera on someone for a long time you could kind of see their character emerge. And I, I think that was kind of his, I think it was his gift, you know. I, I feel like spotting talent in other people is like an underrated talent. Like, I think, you know, like being able to see when someone has charisma or, or you know, screen presence or whatever, and he, he could do that. Um, I don't know if you do this, but I, I was writing a novel and I thought, I need to read the most boring book <laughs> during the novel so that well, I will not... It wasn't not, this book. <laughs> I will not... Uh, I, uh, you know where I'm, where, where I'm going with this. And um, I read, and I'm not even going to, not even going to comment what you just said. I, 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 and your book is coming out in July in America. Mm. Can I suggest you don't try self-deprecation? <laughs> oh, I know. Fine here. Not if we understand it in Dublin, it's part of the deal. Don't do that again, ever. And, uh, but the most boring book I've ever read in my life was were Andy Warhol's diaries. Mm. And they just go on and on. Obviously, they cover every day. He's very interested in the amount of money he spends down to the smallest cent. He um, goes to parties. He loves listing who he's rude to or who he ignored at a party. Went to such and such a party, ignored so-and-so, so-and-so, and so-and-so. And uh, the going to the party was part of the evening, but it wasn't about as much as enjoying yourself as sort of performing or refusing to perform or just standing there. His mother looms large in all of this. And his Catholicism, the strangest thing of all, was this man who sort of, you know, was at the very centre of the New York art world and reinventing things, in, including, the, indeed, the image, was, it, was a fervent and slightly paranoid Catholic. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to go into detail about that, but, you know, he lived quietly. He went home to his mammy when, when night fell. Um, and... Uh, Honestly, his day was spent just, just you know, described. Yeah. He loved things where nothing happened, or not even when something was about to happen, but a taxi downtown, the amount it cost, the, how late it was to get there. You know, I, I, honestly, it was a sort of wonderful book because by the time I was, I was finished, I thought, no matter what I write, <laughs> no matter what I do, it won't be as, you know, as boring uh, as Andy. So this, so it, it was as though he didn't over-dramatized, that in, in the prints he made, in, in the photographs he took, in the, in the films he made, there was a whole sense of standing back and refusing to shape or go into, I suppose, into drama. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think, and I've, yeah, I've read the diaries. They're quite, like, they're quite uh, fascinating and, yeah, very boring. Um, but, like, um, such an insight into a, into a person. Um, I, I, I think the point that you made about him being Catholic is, like, the most interesting thing and once you understand that he's Catholic you understand everything and actually <laughs> when I started writing this book I made a little because um, obviously I'm Irish and I don't clearly have much in common with Warhol but I made a little list of things that we both had in common and I was like oh we both like shopping <laughs> we both like collecting things and I was raised Catholic and things and I felt that when I it, it's a much more it's an Irish book but I, I think it's quite a Catholic book this book when we used to come up to Dublin on the train from Enniscorthy, um, you, you, would, you would get off at, um, at Connolly, it was called Amian Street, and you would walk along Talbot Street, and the, thing, the only thing I wanted in life 
besides the fact that, that Woolworths had a self-service, you wouldn't have to wait for the food, <laughs> was um, an, es- an escalator. Mm. I just couldn't believe that the steps would melt into each other. You could go up and you couldn't go down on the same way to find another one. Now, talk me through escalators. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, I, there's a gr- the, at the start of the book, May is kind of separated from her friend group um, and she has just hangs around and she's looking for something to do so she travels the escalators up and down in a, in a kind of in Bloomingdale's or, or one of them Macy's uh, Macy's uh, she's not Bloomingdale's yet I, I was thinking about that Warhol idea of, of things being just very kind of boring um, boredom did inform some of this book and, and, and things moving quite slowly and then obviously just machines you know like the typewriter is the, obviously the huge machine in the book and then something like an escalator when she's just like on it and you know, you, you get to the top and you, and you can see everything and a kind of sense of control and things. But yeah, I actually really like escalators. And I, as research, I went up and down a couple. <laughs> and um, so um, th- then you write this. Um, I, I love this. Um, so um, several weeks after I first, I, I first started and a while after I came to understand a large part of the reason I was doing it, I met a man traveling down in the opposite direction. This is escalators. There was nothing troubling, nothing perverse about his appearance, but as he passed, he pressed his hand over mine. I think that's a wonderful image of the escalator. You're going there, he put his hand over yours. Oh, my God. A firm grasp. It was affectionate, even though the contact was only brief. His hand over mine, under the hot department store lights, our finger, sorry, department store lights, our fingers meeting on the escalator rail. So I, I thought that was a, just a brilliant image, yeah, yeah. which sort of sets her up in a way yeah. that she's ready for anything, but very innocent as yeah, well. Yeah. I think she's waiting for, you know, sort of, yeah, that moment. Or I think, like, you know, you are like 16 or 17, like waiting for someone to tell you you're special or that you're, you know, unique in, in any kind of way. You yeah, know, and certainly and the next time I go on an escalator, I'll <laughs> I think about nothing else, really. Um, we'll all be doing it. Look, um, <laughs> You know, we all know, I mean, everyone in this room knows that the hardest thing to do ever for all of us would be to write about sex. Like, you just can't write about sex. It's over, you know. And there's a prize even called the Bad Sex Award, and we all live in fear of getting that prize. It is. It's very Um, terrifying. uh, But I think there's great stuff here, really, you know, with this man. Uh, And... um, um, well, I don't want to read the... the <laughs> but I love... Um, when I was naked, he rubbed my small, pudgy stomach in circular motions as if I was a sick animal. <laughs> That's pretty good. His face was ecstatic, and I thought about how twisted and evil his features must have been when he screamed at chairs. But he was... On, anyway, it goes on. But I think that that writing is, 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 is brisk, clear, original, and, you know, free of any nonsense about sex. That, In other words, she's quite puzzled by him. Mm-hmm. She's quite excited, mm. but... It, it's not as though she's enjoying herself. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I feel like she's waiting for to have an, like something, experience something, whether it's good or bad. That's what she she wants at this age. And then I think there's a sort of betrayal. She gets up in the morning and he's gone. And she talks to his mother, and I think that sort of sets up the the novel in the way that no one is 100 percent trustworthy or no one is who you think they're going to be. Yeah, I mean she. Um, you know, his mother, obviously, yeah. Warhol is going to have a mother too, so mm-hmm. this, this idea is yeah. going to form part, of a, part yeah. of a sort of pattern. I couldn't shake the idea... Um, he invited me to sit on a formal two-seater, which appeared new to me. I couldn't shake the idea of him and his mother moving a worn, older couch out of the apartment, his, her bossing him, telling him to turn this way and that, ways that were impossible, berating his lack of strength. His mother was likely a shrew. 
The scenario struck me as, hor- as a horribly intimate scene between mother, son, and couch. Um, I sat perfectly still. That's lovely. I sat perfectly still. Watch that sentence. He held a single finger up to his lips and pointed at a door to indicate his mother was sleeping. Then he went into the kitchen to make coffee. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I think the, the point of this also is he's not going to loom large in the novel. No. That this, this novel is, it doesn't depend mm. on, you know, you meet him early in the novel and mm. right through the novel, he, he comes in in various ways and the relationship mm. changes. In other words, it's Warholian in the sense that Andy Warhol would not be interested mm-hmm. in setting up a novel in which what happens now will have consequences later. Yeah, yeah. It's merely what happens now, and you write it as, mm-hmm. a, as a clear scene, mm-hmm. and you move on to another scene. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny, with the, the sections where they're typing up the novel, I, I was thinking of Warhol's ideas, maybe <laughs> too much of it being, like, just slightly boring, you know? Just, like, so you can kind of, like, sit there and enjoy that to get the, yeah. to the more exciting kind of parts. I, I mean, typing itself... Um, it's almost like sewing, or, or mm. that, that in other words, yeah. a lot of people, certainly in my family, the older members mm. who were all women, they, they prided themselves on their typing, and mm-hmm. typing was a, in a way out of other work. Yeah, yeah. And it was, uh, people could do a certain number of words per yeah. minute mm-hmm. and never make a mistake. Yeah. And it was, um, I mean, it sounds like backbreaking work, but it wasn't yeah, at yeah. the time that I'm talking about of, you know, of my mother and her sisters. It was considered an almost glamorous job, being, being yeah, an actual yeah. shorthand typist. Mm-hmm. And then they, her and May, are, uh, her and Shelley are having this kind of competition, you know, like May is, is I think, faster, but Shelley's more precise and, and that kind of, you know, who, who's the better typist. But it was a seen as transformative sort of work for women uh, in the 60s, you know. So the, the problem is that they're typing for Andy Warhol and they're working from tapes. Now, the problem is for you, the tapes are actually boring. I mean, I mean there's, and if you, could, if you could just give <laughs> yeah. us an account of what actually was on those tapes. Yeah. This was a problem. <laughs> yeah. uh, this, yeah. this did arise. Um, so it's a, the tapes are collected into a novel called A, a novel. And it's quite a tricky book. It was supposed to be recorded over a period of 24 hours. That was like Warhol's intention. But then kind of Aladdin dropped out of the tapes and then t- things took longer. But they're extremely hard to read. And they were, I, as you can see in the book, they're extremely hard to type up because it, things move so fast. People are also like out of their minds and stuff on them, you know. It's random. It's totally random. Yeah, yeah. Their their voices never matched what they were saying, mm. which I think is a great. Their voice. I mean, to, their voices never matched what they were saying. Their emotions were all wrong. They were sick, broke, depressed, but always laughing, always amused, always energetic. The disconnect was enormous, and I couldn't understand it. The gap between how badly they felt and their energy and commitment to keeping going. Like at the party, I was waiting for a mist to clear. Yeah. So in other words, she's young, she's yeah. innocent, she's in the city. And she puts on these, uh, I mean, she, yeah. She's she got tapes, yeah. Yeah, and she has the tapes. Mm. And she's listening to the strangest conversations, mm. which she has to not make sense of, yeah. but actually put words mm-hmm. on to. Mm-hmm. And then also, uh, she's doing that, and also she has to, she's developing these kind of attachments to these people she's hearing all the time because, you know, she can hear them and the conversations they're having and their secrets and what they're saying to each other. But then she goes to a party and, like, they ignore her. They don't know she exists. And I kind of thought that was, like, an interesting idea that kind of tension between you know you can know everything it's, it's sort of like you know they call them parasocial relationships now between how we feel about celebrities and stuff you know you know what are they called parasocial relationships oh my god <laughs> i knew it'd be something new <laughs> every week really? yeah really so like if you go on twitter or whatever and someone's always tweeting about like beyonce or t- taylor swift is a massive one and things that the idea you can have this like full investment in someone's life but they would they'll never know who you are they'll never you're just and, constantly watching them sorry interrupt yeah no 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 do you have a, I mean, what, what are your sources for May? Yeah, for May? Yeah. 
It's funny because I, I felt like obviously I started writing stories um, and then I thought writing stories was like writing a novel, but it's not. It's actually very different, uh, which I continue to find out um, by error. Um, so it took me a long time to find May's voice and I wrote several chapters. Oh, God. Um, several chapters that weren't included. Oh, thank you. You're very um, welcome. Included in the book. Um, and then... Yeah, I, I, I wanted to write a, a 16, 17-year-old girl. Um, and people keep asking me if I found writing 1960s New York hard, but I actually found writing a, a teenage girl way harder, like to get that kind of voice right, you know, because they're so self-absorbed. Um, and I hope I'm not that self-absorbed, <laughs> you know? Um, so that took a little while. That was quite tricky. And But I, I was thinking about that age. I, I think 17 is like such a... A difficult age. Um, I think you're always looking for something outside yourself. Um, you mean that she's knowing and innocent. <laughs> yeah. And exactly. therefore, she's to watch every moment mm. because she's to make sense of the world, which is also desperately concerned about what yeah. impressions she makes. Yeah, 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 yeah. And she's constantly kind of. And I think that, you know, there's moments in the book where she does stuff where she probably shouldn't or she doesn't intervene when she should and she doesn't, she isn't always a good friend and things. And like, I think that is very typical of, of that age. And I knew I really wanted to write a character that, you know, is trying to figure them, themselves out. Um, yeah. Was, was, was there anything helpful? Was Clarice Lispector or, or Rachel actually, Kushner or anyone I, like I've that? I've read lots of Rachel Kushner. I haven't read any Clarice Lispector, right. although I, I enjoy a, a book I was thinking of, um, and she was here last week, actually. It was Mary Gateskill's Veronica. Right. Could, um, you, could you talk about that? Yes. Uh, so Mary Gateskill's an American writer, and she wrote some... She's written some incredible short stories, but she's also written this novel called Veronica. Um, it's about a, a girl uh, who was a model, and she meets this kind of older woman who, as, who's a secretary as well. She gets a temp job, and it's her relationship with the, this, uh, this woman. And a lot of it is told through memory, which is like nothing special is told through memory. Um, I think Mary Gateskill writes memory really well, um, so I was thinking of, of that. I think you, it seems to me you made a big decision about New York. Yeah. That instead of making it into this flashy place yeah. where she's, she's awestruck by the mm. size of it and, you know, that she, she's too interested in other things and she just doesn't really see it. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was yeah. the way I wanted to. Yeah. I was very conscious writing this book of the things I didn't want to do, more conscious than maybe the things I, <laughs> I wanted to do. I didn't want it to be like... You know, we're, we're all familiar with, like, when Andy Warhol, like, comes into a scene in a film and he's, like, you know, giving them drugs or whatever, giving them psychedelics, and he's just, like, a... He's, like, a nothing. He's, like, a... He's not, like, a person. Like, he's, like, an idea and things. I, I kind of... I wanted it to feel real and, and grubby rather than... I don't know, are the New York of our imaginations that we have from, like, 70s films. Yeah, but, I mean, you don't do Fifth Avenue. You don't no. do Greenwich Village. You don't do Brooklyn Bridge. No. You know, I mean, all those things... Seem, seem to me to, to be palpably absent from the yeah. book because it, it's just not what she's thinking about. Mm. This, is, this is her. I blinked and was reminded that we were on the street, which, of course, she's indoors most of the time yeah. typing. Um, the idea that the city was still here was preposterous. It's like a John Bandle, isn't it, that idea? And, uh, <laughs> people walking, people walking briskly, people sitting in the back of cabs, scared of their attention to each other, measuring out the distance between them, people making genuine and unforgivable Genuine and unforgivable mistakes on every street corner. What brought you here, I asked. I couldn't use my abilities where I'm from. Typing? And so the, that is yeah. really her going out into the street yeah. where, where really it's, it's, the, it's the joke she can make in a way about street yeah. corners and yeah, people yeah. in cabs. But it's not 
a, a sweep. It's not a young person coming to the city, mm. finding Warhol, going to all the parties, having a whale of a time, sleeping with everybody, and then getting disappointed in the end. Yeah. You, you're just not doing... You, you must have decided early on. That I wasn't going to Like, uh, you know, yeah. you know, in the sting... I feel like your novel sounds really good. <laughs> in the fly officers, I mean, you're saying, I'm not doing... Uh, New York yeah. novel for you. Thank you. Yeah, I did. I did decide that quite early. And once I made that decision, I felt like it was it was easier. It's it's really hard to write something like The Factory because we or New York. It's really hard to write New York because we all have this idea of New York that is so you know there from TV and films and things. And I wanted it to look at it how she looks at it, which is you know she grew up there, um, and I just didn't. I wanted to avoid. I wanted it to be just about her experience, you know? I didn't, it wouldn't feel truthful to me if she came in and Warhol was like, you know, you're the most attractive, you're the best, you know? You need to be in all the films and you need to get up there and everyone's dancing around or whatever and stuff like that. that didn't, even from what I read about the factory, which to me, you know, was more of a place of work. Like Warhol went there to work every single, like they, it was a working um, kind of environment. And like, I, yeah, I, I wanted it. To, and I wanted the book to be in some ways about disappointment um, and, and failure. Does this have anything in common with the way certain historians are trying to work mm. with people at the edge of the picture? Yeah. Instead of the 1916 leaders, mm. you take somebody who was in the GPO briefly that day to deliver something and then went away. Yeah, yeah. And you're trying to trace who that person might have been mm. with using whatever documents, like such as the census forms or even mm. the pension files, to see if you could just you know, write a picture mm-hmm. of someone who's slightly outside history rather than political leaders. Is yeah, that, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, you know... Exactly, yeah, yeah. And I really wanted it to be... I think people were surprised that it was so about May and so little about Warhol, but to me, the book was about May. It's oh, yeah. about the experience of what it would be like to listen to these people but never get close enough, you know? Um, do you have a thing where... I mean, there are a few times in the book, a good few times, where I was reading a passage and thinking, she's having a really good day. I don't know why, <laughs> you know. Like it, it, often it could be about, you know, a certain amount of coffee, not too much. Um, a certain phone call not made, emails not l- listened. You know, yeah. Sometimes you just have a good day. And um, there are a few times just, you know, this is, um, she's talking about parties. Mm-hmm. Um, you had a good time or you didn't, which is sort of... Now I discovered an array of vast complications, a way to dispassionately evaluate a party's worth, the basic topography, the banal surface, the hard, dark centre. Who was fun? Who was fun? Who was fun? They talked about parties as if they were sweets they were trying to suck dry. I tried not to look at them just as I'd been instructed. And I felt with, particularly this page here, where you're on a sweep, there's something going on. Mm. Um, could, could you tell us the trick? Could you tell us, this, could you tell us how this happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love the long paragraph. Um, it's, it's, it's long. Yeah. <laughs> so my editors are always like, oh, please put in a paragraph break. Um, but I love a good, long, descriptive paragraph. Um, that's the kind of writing I, I, I gravitate towards. Um, and I like it when it has like a lot of momentum kind of in it. Like, and I love describing stuff like parties and, and, and things like that. So you have to bring Warhol. I mean, Warhol does have yeah. to appear. I mean, yeah. I think it's really wise and really clever to have him. Mm. He's the one at the edge. Yeah. He's the one um, that we don't get, you know, we, we don't see his consciousness or what he says. Mm. So he, he has to appear. Here he is. I never saw him come in, but I felt the atmosphere change when he did. I felt it brighten as if suddenly everybody knew exactly where to direct the beam of their attention-seeking. His presence demanded a response, although he didn't do or say much. When he walked across the floorboards, people were quiet, and he had explained in a bored way who he was. But I've already seen the pictures. 
He worked further down the room and no noise, no disturbance seemed to irritate him. His concentration was vast and untouchable. He appeared several times in my dreams, where he was much friendlier. He smiled or patted the top of my head, looked at me with adoration. I was never even introduced to him, but I knew his soft voice, his quick soundless steps. Whenever he spoke to someone, they stood up as if they were more alive, more human in that moment. Mm-hmm. And there's a few things I want to point out about this. First of all, I don't get, I'm not getting an Irish sound in it at all. Mm-hmm. I'm not finding... You know, people talk about Hiberno-English. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is, but it's not here. Mm-hmm. But I'm finding also an American tone in the mm-hmm. book from American literature, mm-hmm. from how do you describe a party going on in America? Well, you know, there's someone called Scott Fitzgerald who did mm-hmm. so. But if, if you look at the sentence, his concentration was vast and untouchable. Mm-hmm. And it is that sort of sense of Warhol as being... What was he doing? In his diaries, he seems to be thinking about nothing. He's Mm. really good at that. But the the aura he had, where people were always watching him, and he Mm. seemed to make a virtue out of that idea that he wasn't bothered. Mm. So his concentration was vast and untouchable. I just think that some of those, some of that sentence making, seems to me to take have its origins in American writing of the twenties. Yeah, as much as it does. I mean, much more than it does any Irish source or any you know, source of this side of the Atlantic. Yes, yes, I would agree. Um, I think I read a lot of American writers. Um, an American writer I was also thinking of particularly when I was writing this is Alfred Hayes. Do you know Alfred Hayes? No, I do not. Tell us about him. <laughs> okay. He's a writer from the, the 1950s. He wrote these very short novels. Um, I, f- I feel like I talk about him all the time. Um, and yeah, you haven't made this up. <laughs> he's a real person. Okay. Uh, he wrote a book called My Face for the World to See. Um, about a, a screenwriter who meets a, an aspiring actress. And he wrote another book actually set in New York called In Love. And it's that kind of, um, those kind of short kind of sentences um, that sort of like, I was trying to do something, I don't know if I succeeded with May, you know, where she's sort of a tricky kind of character, where she's, you, you know, you don't know whether to trust her. And as, the, as, the, as time goes on, you're like, 10 pages in, you're like, she's a standard 17-year-old girl. 20 pages in, you're like, mm. Like, you know, she has that kind of darkness to her, I think. Um, and I, I, I found, I, I, once I, I got the, the kind of sentences right, like sharp sentences, that I, I, it became clearer to me who she was. That whole idea of at the party, she's not mm-hmm. performing, she's watching. Mm-hmm. But you have to be careful, I think, don't you, that she doesn't watch too much. She doesn't mm-hmm. get it sometimes. Isn't yeah, that yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. That she's not in the middle of this group. Yeah, she's not in the middle. Of, although she's making attempts, I think, yeah. more than Shelley towards the end to become mm-hmm. part of something. But yeah, I think, she, you know, the fact that they're listening to these people all the time, they're so overawed by them when they, when they meet them that there's no, way, there's no way in, you know? And I feel like that will be sort of true. Like, you could convince yourself that you're 17, you go to a factory party or whatever, and you'd be welcomed in. But I think you would be hanging around the, like, kind of fringes of, of power, you know? Like, being like, there's Edie, there's, there's Annie, yeah. you know? yeah. Um, I wonder also, um, you know, your first book of stories, the stories are mainly set in Ireland and they're mainly set in provincial Ireland. Yeah. And um, I, I, I think I know the feeling. I wonder if you had it where I, I wrote a novel called The Blackwater Lightship and it had six Irish people over six days um, locked in a house and they couldn't stop in recrimination making tea and, you know, in, in, in invo- <laughs> invoking the name of the, of, of the Lord. And I thought when it was over and it was raining, and when it was over, I thought, I'll never, ever write that again. I don't want mm. any more Irish people. <laughs> I don't want anyone saying, sick, sick of heart of tea. You know, I don't want any of that. I want something much more glamorous and much more cotton pot. <laughs> you know, and when I wrote that, of course, I felt awful and guilty. But I wonder if after the book of Irish stories, mm. that you really did want to go somewhere. Uh, you know, that you weren't going to write, for example, a, 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 about a young Irish girl no. setting out in the world. 
I, I could do that, and I think I will um, still. But I feel when I wrote the stories, it's kind of funny because the stories were all first-person female set, and they're all you know Irish young Irish women, and people kept asking me about them like they were autobiographical, even though they're like extremely absurd. Um, and that was quite funny, even though and no one's asked me if this is sort of autobiographical, even though I feel like I, there's a lot of me kind of in it. Um, but yeah, I, I did think I wanted to try something different, but then. You know, when I read back over the, the, the this, I, I read back over it just before it came out. And I read over the stories too, because I knew I was going to be talking about them and things. And I felt, you know, th there's, there's, so much, there's so many things in common with both. The, the, only, the only thing that is setting, the only thing is different is the setting. You know, they're both about performance, um, kind of people in the shadow of like more famous people. Um, you know, the, I, I, you just can't get away from yourself. <laughs> um, Even when yeah, you try. I, I think there was, uh, if I was trying to find, say, I'm, I'm going to give up this Irish thing in a second, but if I was trying to find an Irish, you know, where, where is the Irish woman in this book? Yeah. There's a moment where one of them eats a burger, which I, I think any American just said, yeah, well, he ate a burger. What, what, yeah. what do you think he did? He ate a burger. And then if you're Irish, you think, actually, there is something up. There's something obscene about <laughs> eating a burger. And Shelley would have been like, um, so I ordered her a burger. Now, you've got to say, so if you're an American, you just yeah. say, I ordered her a burger, and she ate the burger. But if you're Irish, you write, I heard her burger, a hunk of red beef. She almost had to unhook her jaw to eat. And, and you know, if you feel like someone just watching an American eating a burger. And that, but, it's, but it's also that idea that you, you start working more and more, I think, in the book, goes on with details like that, where you defamiliarize, you, mm -hmm. you find something that's, that's sort of normal, yeah. and you, you, you make it strange. Yeah. Her eyes were full of expectation, the meat hanging from her mouth. <laughs> I mean, give us a break. You know, like, that's not an American, that's you. Yes, that's me, yes. <laughs> me commenting on you, yeah, eating a burger. But I feel, yeah, that's something I try and do. Or, like, that's what, I don't know, in writing that I enjoy does that, makes something that's quite normal, just like a little bit strange, like a little bit off. Um, and I, the stories definitely have, that definitely is common in the stories as well. Mm. Um, I mean, did you feel that the story, that you had to be careful with the idea, you know, she types their words. Mm. Their words seem inconsequential. Mm -hmm. they, they seem to be speaking without any shape. Yeah. So she's putting, obviously, by typing it, she's making it real. And that she comes to feel in her innocence and her youth that somehow or other she, it's her book because yeah. she has been the one. And there's a wonderful moment where she starts to think she's going to shape it more mm. by making little mistakes, by putting in little aspects of her own self in misspellings. But that all the time, actually, she's going to be cast aside. That all the, she's not going to be the author of the book. Yeah, yeah. That was the original idea. So I before it even was about Warhol or before I even kind of thought about Warhol, I, I read about this book in... I read about A, a novel, uh, in Olivia Lang's uh, A Lonely City. And I, I thought that idea was really interesting, the idea that you could work on something and, and sort of become the author of it, and then, you know, it would go out into the world and it would just have Warhol's name on it, you know? And, and it, was sort of, it would be taken away from you. And I can, I can feel her attachment. I can understand her attachment to it. But, you know, she's never the, the writer. I thought you were very careful and subtle with this, where you, know, you could make it into a big grievance book. Yeah. You know, that she was, you know, yeah. no, but really, where she was the one who did all the work and they were just lying around. I mean, they're descriptions of all these people in a permanent state of, not just drugged, but just yeah. lying there, yeah. you know, and, and, um, and that she was the one. Mm. But, but you don't overdo that. I mean, you're mm. very careful with that yeah. to, to make it not a yeah, mm -hmm. book that, I suppose, to make it an easy book for us to understand, to, to dramatise the idea that the person who did the typing mm. 
was left out of the picture. Yeah, yeah. But no, she does feel it. Yeah, she does feel it. And I, I feel like, you know, she kind of says towards the, the end, you know, she carries it, like, sort of with her as a secret, you know, that, that the book is, she sees the book and in shops and things, and she's like, that. I was there, you know? And I feel like, I feel like that when I think of, like, any kind of historical event or whatever, it must have been difficult for, like, the people at the margins and things. I think there's a line, you know, um, in the last chapter, she says, or, you know, I can't remember, I'm not allowed to remember, because, like, it just, all the stuff that came out about the factory, about it being so glamorous and this, that, or the other, would, would misplace, like, replace her memories, you know? Yeah. So, or any kind of... There's a story, I don't know what relationship it has yeah. to truth, but it's a beautiful story where no one in Irish dancing had ever done the standing in a row and going outwards towards the audience. They just hadn't done it before. So the question is, who thought of it? Yeah. And so one day they began to do it in rehearsal, for, which became river dance. But who thought of it? And there are loads of theories of someone who thought of it, mm. you know, and um, who wasn't Michael yeah, yeah. Flatley, you know. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I, look, Michael Flatley may have thought of it years ago, but yeah. I love the idea that it was someone from the side just says, have you just tried, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, so this is basically what you're talking about. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, That's going to be my next one. <laughs> who's, um, um, who's Andine? Anadine? Anadine? Yeah. The, the, oh, I'm calling him Andine. Are you calling Anadine. him Andine? Yeah, Andine. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I was um, calling him Andine. I was being very Italian. <laughs> He's called Andine, is he? Andine. I right, think, okay. think Andine. Okay. Um, he? he was um, one of Warhol's original guys, um, like a kind of actor. He was in the Chelsea Girls. He was like a really chatty guy, took a lot of amphetamines and things, and he was around in the 60s when, like, I feel like the people in the 60s, you know, Edie, online, like all those, those kind of people were different to the people that kind of came later before it became a lot more businesslike and, and things like that. But he was around and then he kicked drugs and then became a postman. Um, and I think he died of AIDS in the 80s. I think. Right. Yeah. I mean, your description of him here, um, he was, oh, on my pages, O was for Andine, also known as the Pope. And he was the main talker, words tumbling from him in a ceaseless monologue. If I hadn't seen him in the film, a coke in hand, I'd have thought he was born on the tapes. No family, no history. He existed only to be recorded. After the second week of, uh, after the second week of nothing but his voice in my ear, I knew how he finished his sentences. I knew his favorite curse words, the onsets of his mania, when he was tightly wound in a fit of rage. I knew, I knew, but he was especially high. I, knew, I think I knew when he was lying. He knew a different New York than I did. He walked to a different city, a city I'd only heard of, seen headlines about a city as sharp as a razor blade. And uh, what I'm interested in here is, is, is that you're going into the technical thing mm. where she is really getting to mm. know these people, mm -hmm. courtesy of their voices. Mm. And that, that idea of, I think it, it's a big New York idea. Mm. No family, no history. Yeah. You know, don't, bring, don't bring your history mm. here. Mm -hmm. And don't bring your family, you can reinvent. Yeah. But yeah. don't reinvent with that sort of flashback mm. of, your earlier life in mm. Minnesota. So that people were very surprised by Warhol's Catholicism, say, or his early life in Pittsburgh, mm -hmm. or the arrival of his mother, his mother into the yeah, moment, yeah, yeah. and that he seemed to come with no family, no mm. history. Mm -hmm. but that, so you're working with, with a girl who does have a family, yeah. does have a history, mm. coming into this world where everyone is, like these people are disembodied for mm. her until mm -hmm. they're not, until she's able to imagine them. Yeah, yeah. So you're able to work very the idea of how do you imagine a character? Well, one way is to start yeah. listening to them on tape like that. Mm -hmm. So she becomes a sort of artist yeah, yeah. Um, as she's working, yeah. typing. Yeah, and she convinces herself, I think, that she is, a, she is an artist. You know, she, there's that one line where 
she's talking to to Mikey and she he says she's like I'm a writer and he's like no it's eavesdropping you know it's that line between you know is what she's doing really altering or or is it not but yeah I, I feel like that idea of coming to New York and you know there was a couple of ideas of Warhols that I was thinking of when I was writing the book and that was one of them like reinvention transformation you could if you do this this or that you can become like a entirely new person which is what I think the, the real lore of the factory was you know it can take you and, and transform you into cele- a celebrity which was like an extremely new idea at the yeah. time you know obviously you couldn't leave the mother out I mean it's yeah. too tempting isn't it mm. not to have a scene where she goes shopping with the mother yeah. I mean it just you yeah. had to bring Mrs. Warren yeah yeah yeah, yeah. So could you, could you, could you talk about that <laughs> I was wondering how to do this for a little while I really love department stories as well so there are like several department stories in the in the book, and yeah, she she her she misbehaves, or she steps out of line, or she does. I think she she doesn't follow the tapes exactly, and her punishment is to to bring his mother shopping, um, which is this kind of awkward scene between these quite like two lonely like May is at this point very lonely, like two lonely women. This this whole idea then of um, this being written in an aftermath. Mm. In, in other words, we know what happens next because. Um, it, it's an interesting thing um, in your acknowledgements. Mm. You acknowledge, say, Blake, Blake Gottlieb's yeah. book, which I, mean, I don't want to say anything bad about him, but it's because it's very useful. Mm. But you know those big biographies where you think, oh, no, <laughs> you know, he's only 19. Yeah. Um, you know, there's more, you know, there's a mo- Did uh, you, you reviewed it for the LRB, oh, I, I, Yes, and therefore, because I, I reviewed it, I had to read it. <laughs> and, uh, That's the worst. But I found um, <laughs> the other book you mentioned, the Wayne Kostenbaum book. Yes. In, in other words... It's very hard to make Warhol's life interesting if you go at it chronologically. Mm, mm-hmm. There are other lives that really lend themselves. Just the next year, W.B. Yeats, for example, you can see, you need to know, he went to London, he met Maud Gone. That was a significant moment. With, with Warhol, there's significant moments. Yes, he got shot, but it, that maybe wasn't that yeah. significant. Yeah, yeah. So in other words, it, 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 in, in other words, the story seems to go in a circular way or in a dotted line mm. rather than in a chronologic, in chronological yeah. and then and then and then mm. form. So the other book, the Wayne Kostenbaum book, is a book that just goes through his theories, goes through his films, yeah. and it takes him in an entirely different light, in mm-hmm. a way. And so that it, he, he lends himself to a novelist in that sense, yeah. in, in that you can come in from the side to yeah. the story. Yeah, no, I really liked that Wayne Kostenbaum book, because I, I think, I agree, I don't think you got, I don't think there is this, like, straight, he's such a tricky person, I don't think there is this straight arc where you can be like, well, this X happens, and then... He became this, you know, like oh, things always seem to be happening, or like his ideas seem to be coming like all the time, um, which I find really, really interesting. Did you hang out in New York? Um, I mean, did, I lived in New York. Did you, did you haunt the streets <laughs> in order not to write those scenes? Well, it was during COVID, uh, largely, so I did not. I haunted uh, Smithfield and Stony Better, which are very like uh, 1960s New York. No, I lived Can in New York. Can you just say that again, because just in case anyone missed it, you haunted what? <laughs> Smithfield. <laughs> And Stony Better. So, so your so your New York is um, uh, just down the road, Citric Road yeah. and um, Prussia Street. But yeah, I, I did um, I, I did I lived in New York for a year, so I felt like I wasn't um, too kind of. And I, I read a lot. Um, I watched a lot of the films. I watched a lot of films from 1960s and 1970s. Um, and I yeah, I, I did that kind of research. It's interesting what you're saying about the the biographies. You know, the Blake Gopnik one, which I, I read and I, I felt the same way. Like, it is such a undertaking. But also some of the others, I, I, it's like I was saying about the Edie book. Like, you're getting so many different people have so many different perspectives of him. And, like, even you can't, you can't trust any of them. Um, 
So that that was difficult. I read I read a couple. I mean, everyone has their own kind of little agenda. Like somewhere along the lines, like someone includes a sentence where they thought of painting the the soup cans, and it's like, well, you didn't all think of painting the soup cans. You didn't all suggest it. So yeah, I found that quite. He, he was also. I mean, I don't want to be rude about him, but he was also a kind of ninny, wasn't he? Um, <laughs> that he was afraid of his shadow. Yeah. And he would have had a lovely pandemic because he would have spent his time. You know, people who wash everything that you know if, yeah. when a package came in, yeah. washed it. He would have really been paranoid, yeah. oh, paranoid about catching COVID. Yeah. And and he would have given him a big excuse to you know, not go anywhere, wear 10 masks or... And he could have watched loads of TV because he loved watching TV, so... Yeah, he yeah, loved yeah. just getting a TV screen yeah. and sitting vacantly in front yeah, of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He wouldn't love COVID. <laughs> it's a shame he missed it. Well, th thank you very much for this book, oh, Richard. Thank you. I really Thanks it. very much. Thank you.